Hello and welcome to episode 3.2 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm your moderator, Victoria Reynolds Farmer, and with me today are Lisa Cordles and Sarah Morrow Cernelia. Hello, ladies. Hello. Hello. Uh, before we start, let's introduce ourselves for anyone new to the show. I am Sarah Morrow Cernelia. I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, and I'm currently living in High Point, North Carolina. I'm a high school teacher by day and a doctoral candidate by night. My dissertation will concentrate on 18th century British drama, and when I'm not doing that, I teach high school seniors at the only non-sectarian independent school in this part of North Carolina. I am a newlywed, a 13-year alumna of Catholic schools, and this podcast's token Catholic, and I'm very excited to be back for this episode. Um, okay, wow. <laughs> My name is Lisa Cordles, and I'm not sure how to follow that. And uh, I am an adjunct professor at Crown College. Um and that's kind of my day job, but my night job is turning into being an author and publishing some of my fictional stuff. So all of that's kind of getting going. And um I have three children. So I if uh Sarah's the token Catholic, I'm the token mother today. I have a nineteen year old, eleven year old, and a nine year old, and I'm really glad I just remembered all their ages correctly. Um, and again, I'm very excited to be back as well. Thank you. Uh, and I, as I said, am Victoria Reynolds Farmer. I am also an adjunct instructor at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota, where I teach English and sociology. Uh, and like Sarah, I am a doctoral student by night. So uh, before we begin today's show, I have a brief correction regarding a previous episode. Uh, in our discussion of the end of Iron Jawed Angels in episode 2.1, I said that the depiction of the deciding vote being cast by a senator who received a telegram from his, from his mother encouraging him to vote for the ratification of the amendment was historically inaccurate. I was incorrect. That really did happen, uh, and according to further research, actually was the deciding vote. So, sorry for telling you wrong the first time, and thanks very much to panelist Marie Hawes for alerting me to some relevant historical sources. Uh, so, today's show is the last in our four-part series on feminist history. We've titled it, I'm Not a Feminist But, and we'll be discussing anti-feminist backlash beginning in the late 80s and continuing today. Susan Faludi is uh, really the first author to bring this idea to the cultural mainstream in her 1991 book, Backlash, the Undeclared War Against American Women. In it, she argues that heading into the new millennium, American culture's understanding of feminism is based primarily on shallow stereotypes, most of which, she says, are directed at career women. Over a decade later, Ariel Levy writes a similar book for younger feminists, 2005's Female Chauvinist Pigs, Women and the Rise of Raunch Culture. Unlike Faludi, Levy turns her feminist criticism inward, saying younger women who see cultural phenomena like Girls Gone Wild and the widespread success of the Playboy brand as empowering are misled. She says they've internalized shallow notions of empowerment because the sexuality they're performing is still engineered with a male gaze in mind. This idea of pervasive post-feminist backlash is not just limited to journalism. I'm Not a Feminist But is the title of a coffee table book, a documentary, and a Tumblr 
uh, among lots of other things, all made by different sources. So today, we're going to discuss this cultural trend from two slightly different angles. First, we're going to talk about two blog posts that discuss one woman's decision not to label herself a Christian feminist. Second, we're going to cover writer Joss Whedon's acceptance speech from uh, the Equality Now Awards on November 4th of this year, in which he describes why he hates the word feminist. So, Sarah, since you alerted me to these blog posts, start us off. What about them made you think we should discuss them on this show? Uh, sure, I can do that for you. Uh, shortly after we recorded our last episode together, the three of us, about biblical modesty and shame, I came across the first of the Life in Grace blog posts for today while doing some general searches about Christian feminism. And once I read the title of the first post, titled Why I'm Not a Christian Feminist, God as Father, the Backstory, I thought that this series of posts uh, might actually be one worth talking about in this forum. This first post, the one that sparked my interest, uh, recounts Edie Wadsworth's upbringing and young adulthood. Wadsworth details, among other things, her childhood in a household characterized by stable women and unstable men, and her attempts to reconcile her past with her present. While reading the first post, the following passage made alarm bells sound in my head. The passage is as follows. Quote, On the surface, I had the world by the tail. Everything I touched was gold. But underneath and unbeknownst to me, a groundswell of anger and pride and revenge was forming. In hindsight, maybe I was becoming a feminist. I wanted to show the world what I was capable of. Maybe then the gaping wounds in my heart would heal. Maybe then I would be whole, end quote. And so these alarm bells that were sounded when I, when I came across this first passage were raised again in, the, in a passage I'll read from her second post in a little bit, which uh, more directly addresses the issue of why I'm not a feminist. And in this episode, she, in this post, she talks about Christ as husband. Um, the second post recounts Wadsworth's metanoia after her father's death and her decision to leave her career as a medical doctor to pursue what she calls a more traditional role of mother and wife. She credits this change in her own life with a change in her faith and an answering of the previously unanswered questions in her heart. At the same time, she considers herself freed from the trap of feminism and specifically targets feminism generally and the people who call themselves Christian feminists specifically as a threat to Christianity or to use her words, quote, dangerous and subversive. And the first passage that caught my attention was the following. My 10 years of wandering were finally over too, and maybe the sorceress that held me captive was feminism with her lies of how I could have it all, how I was the same as a man, and how I should be free from the constraints of living the traditional role of mother and wife. And then later, she charges that feminism has told us the ultimate lie that we can be like God. So while Wordsworth writes from a genuine place, uh, from a position of love for her sisters and, and from a position of bravery in terms of her own personal history, some of the language in these posts uh, troubled me when I first read them, and in fact, they still trouble me. I still haven't decided if 
they trouble me because there is some truth to her theologically based arguments about our relationship to God the Father and our relationship to Christ as uh, spousal, or if it because it, it feels to me like there is a disconnect between the objections to feminism that she raises and the Christian perspective she espouses. Her posts, if I'm understanding them correctly, declare that Christianity and feminism are incompatible, that if anything, feminism is a threat to religious orthodoxy. And so in light of the title of this podcast and our project, I thought that they would be a good starting point for one of our discussions, and they fit in well with the discussion of the anti-feminist backlash that we're talking about today. Thanks, Sarah. That's a really great uh, introduction to the posts. You summarized them really well, and I, I like that you pointed out the central issue of compatibility between Christianity and feminism. Um, obviously, I do not need to say uh, our opinion on that subject. It's, it's clear, as you said, in the title of our project. Um, obviously, we think that these things can coexist, um, but I was really intrigued with uh, this blogger's reasons that that coexistence doesn't work. Uh, but before I talk, Lisa, um, you had some things you wanted to address about the posts? Um, well, first of all, I don't think that she really addressed the title very well. I was looking for her to explain in detail and kind of an orderly fashion. That could be my OCD a little bit. But I was looking for her to just kind of break down why she's not a feminist. And I didn't really get that from either blog post. I think that she waves a hand at that, which I think was good, but there seems to be a lot of confusion about how she's defining the term feminist. And throughout the article, something that I picked up on, and I think Sarah already mentioned, it's a very negative definition that's never really defined. Um, I feel like it's a sort of a stereotypical definition of what a feminist Christian looks like. And some of the things that she pointed out are problems that I have with secular feminism. So I just think there's a little bit of confusion between secular feminism and Christian feminism, or even feminist theology for that matter. Uh, absolutely. That was, um, that was one of the things that I really wanted to address, is not only does she not um, define feminist, but she doesn't um, offer any kind of differentiation at all between feminism and Christian feminism. And I think, um, as you said, some of the problems she expresses um, with ma with feminism are problems I see in mainstream feminism too. Too much self-reliance, um, to a, a kind of self-inflation, I think, um, that, that is incompatible with uh, with Christianity and, and with the kind of dying to self we're called to do, but she, because she doesn't acknowledge that multiple feminisms exist, um, yeah, I, I don't think that the conversation is, is moved forward that much. Uh, but Lisa, I think you also wanted to talk about um, some of the uh, personal experiences that the blogger draws on. Yeah, um, I thank you again for the opportunity to talk a little bit about some of my testimony. I, I understand what she's talking about. I do on a very personal level. I came from an abusive home. Um, it was physically abusive, verbally abusive and sexually abusive. I, it was all three. And, um, I know what it's like 
to remove yourself from that situation and go through a time of wandering and trying to figure out who you are because you don't really know because you're in this process of healing and you've been in survival mode. Um, I was in survival mode. I think that I was aware I was in survival mode from the age 10 on. I was aware that I was in this like mode of day-to-day figuring things out. And what I found sad about this post was her diminishing her experiences. I've been to support groups uh, for women through situations I've had counseling myself, and I do mentoring as well. And there is hope and there is healing. But something that is very, very common, very common, is women who come from abusive situations, be it from a parental figure or a husband, will diminish their experience. They'll make it sound like it really wasn't all that big a deal. And it is a big deal. And this is an important issue and an important moment in your life. And I think just kind of waving a hand, the thing that struck me just so, you know, almost forcefully was, oh, yeah, it was violent. I thought, oh, my goodness. Um, You say that so offhandedly. And then um, the other thing I wanted to talk about is there is hope and healing in your relationship with Christ. But it's, it's a journey. It's not um, a burning bush kind of moment where, boom, you're healed. It's a journey. And to state otherwise, I think, sets up women for failure. You know, what's wrong with me? How come I didn't experience this? And I didn't experience what she did. I didn't come back to – I did come back to Christ. I did take a prodigal daughter journey and come back to Christ. But it wasn't this magical, per, everything's perfect, fairy tale ending I had ups and downs and backslides in my, my prodigal journey and my dealing with what it means to have a father God when I didn't really have a loving father myself and what those images and those metaphors actually mean and how I connect with them when there is a disconnect because of my abusive background. But it was su- it's such a journey, and I just want to make sure that our listeners know that, that there is no such thing as you know coming home and baking apple pies and everything's perfect. I mean, I, I like to bake apple pies too and all that good stuff. And, but it's just, it doesn't work that way. When you come from an abusive background, it has a lasting effect on you. It affects every aspect of your life. It affects your physical well-being, your mental well-being, and your spiritual well-being. It is a holistic thing that you have to work through. And so I was really sad to see that she was in this place of still diminishing what she went through. And I just pray that maybe in future blogs that she won't diminish what she went through and actually come out and talk a little bit more about that journey. I hope she does. That's kind of my hope. Yeah, I was I was really impressed with her ability to address those kinds of issues in a public forum. And I was kind of disappointed that uh, she says in the first blog post that she thinks it's going to be a five-part series. And I searched her tags um, and other um, titles of posts, but could only find the two um, that we read that we'll link to. I, I was hoping that this would go on because I, I wanted to give her more of a chance to to define those terms and, and sort of hash out um, the lack of specificity I was seeing. So I, I don't want to give the impression that um, that I, I think that everything about this series of posts is terrible just because I don't agree with her central premise. Um, there, there's a lot, um, I think, to be admired about where she's coming from. I just don't think all the parts really add up in a 
logical way in these two posts at least. And I would agree with that and just I'm I'm hoping because she did state a couple of times there's more to the story, which makes sense. I understand that. Um, I'm hopeful too that, you know, there's a little bit more fleshing out of that journey toward coming home that she talks about and kind of references the Odyssey and all of that about coming home. I know what she's talking about. I understand what she's saying because I was angry for a really long time. And I, I mean, I said things that I can't believe that I said now when I was on my prodigal journey, but you know what? That was me being in pain. That had nothing to do with being feminist or feminism. That was me dealing with pain that I went through and experienced uh, at the hands of men in my life. But, and so for me, I just, there's a difference. And, you know, I, I, I think one thing I just want to point out because of, you know, at least Christian feminists, I have the ability to talk about what I went through today and help others. And, and I think that, you know, to say that, you know, that, you know, that's the evil sorceress to me is like, mm, okay, I get where that's coming from. It's coming from the, you know, the days on the prodigal journey where she probably said things like I did, like, I'm never going to get married and all that other stuff. And I'm never going to do this and I'm never going to do that. And I'm, you know, all these things. But again, I think that comes from that place of pain. So I applaud her immensely for opening the conversation up. So, cause I know that's kind of hard too. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, Sarah, is there anything else you wanted to say about these posts before we um, move on to our next discussion topic? Well, I think that we, um, I think that we have covered, particularly you and Lisa, have talked about the the central issues that we found with these posts and the things that we would have liked to have seen. And, and I do also want to add my voice and into the our chorus. And say that I certainly don't don't intend to diminish her personal experiences, but I would have liked to see some of the some fleshing out of the definitions that we had seen. And like we've mentioned already before, that since the title of the book that she wanted to write at one point was why I'm not a Christian feminist, to see some addressing of the specifically Christian feminist. Uh, aspect of what she is claiming she chooses not to participate in. So I hope that project comes somewhere. Uh, maybe she'll pick that up in a few years. I'd be interested to read it. Um, and I wasn't sure if we were going to say anything else about the distinction between feminism and Christian feminism specifically before we move on or not. Uh, yeah, I, I think that we should. I think we okay. should um, we should clearly define those terms. I, mean, I think we have a little bit on previous episodes, but the one thing I, I would like to say is um, is in my classes, um, because I deal with a lot of different uh, thought patterns and philosophies, and I'm introducing my students to ideas that they haven't necessarily seen before. Uh, a phrase that I use a lot is mining for Egyptian gold. Uh, the idea that because you're a person of faith, um, because you're attached to a belief system, um, if you come across a philosophy or a worldview that is not 100% uh, 
in line with that belief system, that's no reason to throw it out whole cloth. You should treat ideas with respect. You should engage with them um, truthfully and where they are and not on stereotypical levels. And you should take the good and leave the bad. And that is something that I try to do um, when I teach my students about things like um, like feminism, like Marxism, like postmodernism, those sort of big scary isms that they, um, because they've been in a Christian school environment, are want to turn their nose at. Um, so I, I think that, uh, that that would be my advice to this blogger too, that, um, you know, Christian feminism isn't the same as secular feminism that Christian feminism has equality at its heart, just as secular feminism does, but that it also um, has sacrifice and submission and Christ-likeness there too, and that one is not to be sacrificed at the hands of the other. And I really like that, and um, I hope that we will get a chance to talk a little bit more about that later, um, particularly when we get to the last segment of our podcast today. Okay, so now that we've discussed everything we want to discuss about those two blog posts, um, we're going to talk a little bit about Joss Whedon's uh, Equality Now Award acceptance speech, which happened just a few days ago um, on November 4th. Joss Whedon, as I'm sure most of our listeners know, is a well-known writer and filmmaker responsible for... uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the television series, not the terrible film, uh, and its spinoff show, Angel. Um, he recently did an adaptation of Shakespeare's Much Ado About Nothing. Uh, he directed The Avengers, and what am I missing? Oh, um, he's also quite famous for the super low-budget uh, cult hit Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog. Uh, So, Whedon himself is known for several things. First, he's known for really rapid-fire wit, uh, cleverness, and he's known for really strong female characters. Um, There's a a famous um, quote in an interview where he's asked to detail the question he's most asked in interviews. And uh, he says, I'm always asked why I write such strong female characters. And he says, my response is always the same. It's because people keep asking me that question. It's because there's still this differentiation between strong female characters and just female characters. So because he's known for uh, women who kick butt like, like Buffy Summers, Um, like Echo in uh, his other series, Dollhouse. He is associated with with feminist um, points of view and feminist themes a lot. So he gets this Equality Now award and gives a rather long speech. It's uh, it's about 15 minutes, isn't it? Yeah, it's about 15 minutes long from what I saw. Uh, So he gives this rather long speech, the first sentence of which is... Uh, I hate feminist. Is it okay to say that? And then he clarifies and says, I don't mean to say that I hate feminists, but I hate the word feminist. And he talks about why, um, and he says that we should 
stop using that word and start using the word genderist like we use the word racist in order to signify that um, that prejudice against women is something that's um, dated, passe, bad to do. Um, like it's like it's bad to be a racist. It should be bad to be a genderist, he says. So um, I'll since I, I've given the background, I'll talk more about my opinions about the speech in general in a minute. But first, um, Lisa, what are your thoughts? Why do you think some people are so scared to claim the term feminist? I think in Christian circles, it has to do with the disconnect between what a Christian feminist is defined as and what that looks like and what feminist theology is actually all about at its core. And for me, the best explanation I've ever heard about feminist theology and Christian feminists is that they are interested in the flourishing of women and by extension, the flourishing of all humankind. And for me, I feel like that helps quite a bit just to have that clearly defined. And I think many Christian women don't want to be called feminists because they associate that word with things like abortion, with things like um, that they're against, if that makes sense. They, they think more in terms of um, the politicizing and the secular feminism that's out there. And I understand why many, many Christian women and followers of uh, women who follow Christ don't want to be associated with certain aspects of feminism. But what opened my eyes to the fact that, um, you know what, this is a term that I'm actually proud to wear is when I heard it defined so differently that, you know, this is about the flourishing of women, um, as, as created by God and, you know, bringing out the Christ in others and bringing out the Christ in ourselves and by extension, the flourishing of all humankind. To me, if you define it that way, and honestly, that's what most of the feminist literature and theology that I sort of wade through and even the agrarian, agrarian, oh gosh, I always say that wrong, agrarian stuff that I've been reading that's coming out of uh, the feminist theologians, um, it just has to do with this idea of, you know, flourishing in creation and being the person that Christ has called you to be. I think when it's defined that way, it's not such a, you know, a, a mantle people don't want to carry. But when it's defined in secular and politicized terms, there's going to be that distance and the backlash. Okay, well, that makes sense on a Christian level. Um, but then what's Whedon's excuse? coming from, uh, or not directly, not overtly, coming from a faith perspective, um, what are his objections in the speech to the term specifically? Whedon claim, almost seems to be arguing what we might call um, a post-feminist approach in his pitch for genderism instead of feminism, um, in which he's calling for us to create a new term. Um, he seems to be acknowledging, however, Im implicitly that we've moved beyond a feminist cause, if that makes any sense, um, whatsoever. And while on the one hand, I particularly like the way he ended his speech with the line, we will never not be fighting, um, which seems to be doing some of the transcending work that, that, post-feminism in, in one of its definitions claims to do, um, it does seem that he's still 
I don't want to say afraid of the word, but that, that he does espouse backlash to, to a word that has become, like Lisa noted, politicized to a point that people don't want to identify with the word because of the political weight that it now carries, if that makes any sense. Um, I'm not entirely sure. Lisa, what are your thoughts? I think I think you're absolutely correct. I think when people hear the word feminist, they think of it solely in terms of the political agenda. And again, what they're thinking about is the advertised political agenda, what makes the you know CNN, MSNBC, that sort of thing. There's plenty of feminists, um, even secular feminists, that don't agree with everything that that you know is in the media about feminists. I just think it's become. Um, a, a word that has a negative connotation, I think, inside and outside the church because of that politicization of of the issues that are important uh, to women. And I think on some level, I think you're absolutely right. I, I liked what you said about post-feminist because I think the issues that feminists are talking about and are interested in and should be talking about, there are times where, yes, that's going to move into uh, the political arena to make positive changes for the flourishing of humankind. But I also think that that's where the water got muddy to start with was, you know, the politicalization of, of the term. And so I guess I would agree with what you're saying. I did like some of the one thing that he said, I just wanted to point that out. He said either a woman is a person or she's not. And I thought, well, yeah, you know, um, obviously it's a very simple truth that he stated there, but I definitely liked that piece of what he said. And that's a quote that actually has kind of stuck with me after watching the video a few times. Um, yeah, I, I think that's a great quote. And that's from a part of the speech where he's talking about misogyny. He takes issue with the word misogyny because he says that people who commit things that we call misogyny aren't really hating women um, and and so we should we should find a different term we should um, frame sexism I, I I really think that he could just fall back on sexism as a word that already exists um, as something that is is passe like racism so he says just call someone who does that a genderist uh, like you would be accusing them of racism, and that will be bad. Um, he he also begins the speech um, in a really uh, funny way, talking about how words sound. Um, he says that feminist as a word um, starts off nice, the, the fem is nice, and the n is okay, but the ist is, is loud and angry. Um, and my first um, my first thought was, well, yeah, it's loud and angry. It's got a lot of things to be loud and angry about. Like, I, I, I really sort of took offense at that. And I, I know that he was joking and, and sort of being a writer and, and talking about how writers live inside words and, and really sort of feel around words and, and how they sound. I understand that, um, that he was trying to enter into a very complex social issue in a light, joking, charitable way, and I respect that. But 
because I, I love the work he produces so much and because I love it partly because it makes such an effort to include strong women, women who kick butt, women who are allowed to be angry and have emotion, um, I, I did chafe a little bit at him saying, you know, that sounds angry and ugly and I don't like that. He was trying to be lighthearted about it, but at the same time almost seemed to... Uh, yeah, seemed to make small the idea that he was trying to convey. And I, I'm with you on that. I wasn't entirely sure that I was on board with him. Yeah, I, I definitely wasn't either. I I concur with what um, Victoria is saying, that there are issues that women face that we should be angry about, you know? And I hesitate to say this, but righteously so. Um, when I think about my own story, my own background— um, you know, one of the, the biggest things that somebody told me that helped me heal so much was, you know what, it's okay that you're angry that people abused you. That's okay. You have absolutely every right to be angry about that. And so for me, like that helped me to embrace this idea that it's okay that I'm angry about what happened in this issue or an issue that I hear about today, but it's what I do with that anger. So I think sometimes, you know, we're, we're meant to be angry. We're meant to um, have an emotional response to something so that we have also a call to action. And so I, I, I guess I didn't completely agree with what he was saying, but I think he was trying to be funny. So I kind of let it go. I, I agree with you. I think that, um, that anger is something, uh, something that women are often discouraged from generally. Uh, we discuss Laurie and Marie and I discussed this on our most recent episode, um, that one of the kind of freeing, wonderful things about um, Riot Girl as an offshoot of punk is that it, it gave women angry voices and said, you know, if society is unfair and prejudiced, then yeah, be angry and say something about it. So I, I do think that that anger is powerful. Um, one more thing I wanted to talk about in this speech is uh, he says, um, the word feminist suggests that the idea of equality is just an idea that is imposed on us. And he argues that equality is a natural state um, that, that seemed wrong to me. Uh, d did you have any responses to that? Is equality a natural state? And if it is, what does that mean? I think equality, it was a natural state, uh, prior to the fall. I don't think it is anymore. I think that's an unrealistic expectation. I think one of the conditions of the fall is that we have to now deal with inequality. Um, when I, I teach Old Testament, that's where my master's degree is. Um, that's where I'm doing my current postgraduate work as well. Um, I think you have to address the fact that Adam and Eve were partners in purpose. Um, they were on equal footing, and there's no indication that they weren't on equal footing uh, prior to the fall. And then, you know, we have the fall, and one of those consequences is uh, this idea of inequality that we now have to deal with. That is not what God intended for us, but that's where we are. And so now we have to deal with it. So is it a natural state? Sort of, but, um, it's also, uh, you know, kind of unrealistic as we navigate in this, uh, fallen world. 
I just, I just think that inequality is something that is a consequence that we now deal with. And, um, I don't feel personally that it can be overcome, especially between men and women without the, the foundation of Christ. And so that, that would be my response. Uh, and, and I agree. I, um, and, and for similar reasons, uh, as you ladies know, and some of the listeners may know, uh, I'm a Calvinist. And so the, the first thing I thought of when I read, uh, heard and read, I was reading a transcript at the same time, that um, equality was a natural state was like, n- no, no, total depravity, no. Um, that, you know, uh, as humans, um, no, we, we screwed that up. Equality is, is not natural. Um, in fact, feminism needs to exist because equality is not natural, because inequality is what's natural. Yeah, I'm kind of a religious mutt, and so that means that I've been to Catholic school, but I actually went to a Reformed church for many, many years. Um, Just a mental note to parents, don't do that to your children. Make a decision. Go with it. Um, My dad was Catholic, and my mom was not, so we went to Catholic school, but we went to a Protestant church. Anyway, and the Protestant church that we attended was Calvinist, and so for me, like right away, I was like, "Mm, that does not sound right. (laughs) You know, so I, I do concur with um, your statements on that, uh, Victoria, but I do think this conversation that we're having is important. And to address the fact that you're right, we did screw up the equality, but there is hope in the fact that, um, you know, that so much of the new Testament after the ascension of Christ is about unity and how to achieve unity in the body of Christ. And I think that's kind of the point, right? Because I think, you know, um, God knows that uh, we're just not good at this and it's part of, you know, what we have to work through because of the fall. And so um, I just concur with what you said. So, yeah. Well, before, uh, quickly, before we get to the recommendations section, um, there was just one more thing that I wanted to try to toss out to our friends and listeners. Um, And that's that this idea um, that, that this idea of possibly being in a post- feminist moment and what that might mean. And, um, my feeling, and I'm not sure ladies feel free to weigh in on this. Um, much like I believe that this idea, the idea that we're living in a post-racial society is a fallacy. I'm not entirely sure that we've moved beyond feminism or that feminism's concerns as we've talked about today, um, is now dead or irrelevant. So my question Uh, to Whedon's point would be, do we really need a new word or phrase, or do we need to work to change people's perceptions of the word we currently have? For example, if we all know that language is constantly in flux and therefore is not static, then maybe we should consider the possibility that we can, uh, perhaps that we must work with the terms that we currently have. Just wanted to toss that out there, um, if anybody had anything, before we move on to our recommendations. I, I wholeheartedly agree uh, with that sentiment. I think it is our responsibility as feminists, and maybe especially as Christian feminists, to embody the term, claim the term, in a way that opens people's minds. Uh, I've talked on this podcast before about the importance, um, how important it is to me to uh, claim the label in my classroom, so I, I won't reiterate that in much detail now. 
Uh, but I will say I, I have major qualms with the term post-feminist because, um, because it suggests that feminism has been accomplished. Um, in fact, in my office at school, I have a, a little paper sign that says, I'll be post-feminist in the post-patriarchy. Nice. Uh, I like it. Because I, I just I love that. I just have to say. Um, yeah, and I uh, I, I believe um, strongly in that. I, I get, as you might imagine, a lot of comments on that sign from students, which is why I put it up right over my desk. But I, I do think that the term is reductionist, that it suggests that the feminist uh, goal has been reached. And I do think, um, like the similar term that Sarah mentioned, post-racial, um, that, that that's a lie to make us feel good about ourselves. Yes, in both areas, we've uh, gone far, but we, we still have far to go. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I do agree with you that, and I also agree with Sarah that I don't know so much that we need a new word, um, as much as we need to change, you know, people's hearts and minds toward that word. And I, I guess for me, I think what we're doing right now is what we should be doing. I think the term means redefining and in, in forums like this and in blogs and places like that. And I almost feel like it's a word that you need to take back. You know, why, you know, let's take it back if it's in this negative place and has a negative connotation. Again, I think we're doing what we should be doing. We're discussing that and then offering something new. And for me, um, and I said this earlier, I was able to be okay with being called a feminist when it was redefined for me, when I saw it in a different light and had a new perspective on it. And that's something that I know is very important to Victoria as an educator, and it's also to me. It's that idea of, you know, widening your worldview and your perspective um, in order to, you know, make to make heartfelt transformations. So I just, you know, concur with both of you on that as well. And I, I think I should say one more thing in light of our previous um, episodes discussion on linguistic reclamation, where we talked about, um, we we basically said. I'm not sure reclamation is entirely possible because all meanings and connotations of words are kind of always already attached, but that doesn't mean we should stop trying. So I, I think that that's really applicable here too. I'm not sure we're ever going to get rid of those sort of negative, uh, angry, hairy-legged, man-hater associations with the term, um, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try every day in our interactions with our students and our friends and our families to embody the term in a more human, well-rounded way to, to fight against those kinds of associations. And I also think, you know, what you said is, is definitely valid. And also, too, maybe those negative connotations help us have those conversation starters. You know, a lot of times I'll get asked, I get asked this a lot. I don't know if Victoria and Sarah, you do as well. I get asked a lot, how does your husband feel about the things that you do? Um, it's frustrating at times, but um, how does he feel about you calling yourself a feminist and all these other things, you know? And, and obviously there's a lot behind someone asking a question like that, but it also comes to the point of the matter that, okay, when you ask me a question like that, you already have an idea of what a feminist is, and you're trying to reconcile that with a person that you see in me every day and the two don't fit, that's actually a good thing because your connotation is negative. And so then at least there's a conversation starter um, and a place where I can at least dialogue a little bit 
Although I have to say, when somebody starts a conversation, how does your husband feel about something you're doing? I have to take a deep breath before I answer. But I mean, um, yeah, I, I do think sometimes that negative connotation, like I don't want to stamp it out. I want to use it for dialogue. Great, great point. I, it's, it's good to, uh, to open up those conversations and, and use those assumptions. And I, I do get that question a lot. And I, uh, I kind of love that question because I get to respond, well, uh, how he feels is he calls himself one too. So, you know, <laughs> to tell me what you do with that. All right. Well, today I would like to suggest to all of you an alternative to the post-feminism that we have just been talking about that some people are calling new feminism, uh, some other people are calling complementarianism. Uh, the term new feminism actually was coined by uh, Pope John Paul II in his, angelic, in his encyclical Evangelium Vitae, or the Gospel of Life, when he notes that women occupy a place in thought and action that is unique and decisive. It depends on them to promote a new feminism which rejects the temptation of imitating models of male domination in order to acknowledge and affirm the true genius of women in every aspect of the life of society and overcome all discrimination, violence, and exploitation. Um, so my first recommendation, if we're going to try to explore what maybe John Paul II has talked about uh, in the encyclical, what other people have done with that piece and how they've responded to it, um, is actually a piece by Leonie Caldicott, which was originally published in the International Catholic Review in 1996. It's called Sincere Gift, the Pope's New Feminism. And my second recommendation is actually from Leah Jacobson, who wrote a piece for the website Ignitum Today back in July that explains uh, new feminism and how it is not necessarily just a Catholic thing, since the term was coined by the late John Paul II. And um, I will have links to both of those articles for us to post online. Uh, Lisa, what do you have for us? I actually am pulling from a Catholic website also uh, because I stumbled upon it after reading these posts. I just started Googling like, all right, what are some other posts out there? And I found an excellent article and I, I will give the link um, available to our listeners on Catholic Education Resource Center. And it's called Christian Feminism, A Fuller View of Woman. And what I loved about this is it addresses, it's a thesis um, written by a, a very well-known woman um, who was actually honored by Pope John Paul II um, last November uh, for the defense of her doctoral thesis. And basically what it is, it's is, is an analysis of feminist theories in light of the philosophy of Thomas Aquinas. I read through this. It was excellent. It was kind of a question and answer. Um, and it was just so well done and just, just offered something new in terms of the definitions and the things we've been talking about. And a quote I want to read from this is, secularized feminism raises excellent questions but cannot answer them, says an American theologian who points to a Christian feminism as an antidote. Whether you agree or disagree with what she's written, I did find it really fascinating because it pulled in all of these elements of you know, theology and secular feminism and just all of that. So I liked that. And then the other recommendation I have in regard to some of the things I shared about my personal story um, and just women that struggle with this image of a father God because they didn't grow up with a loving father. And I, I do know that that is a personal struggle for many women of faith. Um, there is a book by Henry Nowen called The Inner Voice of Love, A Journey Through Anguish to Freedom. And he addresses this um, head on. 
one of my favorite pieces that he wrote in here is you have to let go of your father figures because they will only let you down. And he goes on to say that you have to find your fulfillment in Christ alone. And I just have to say, like when I was going through my healing journey, um, this was a wonderful journal edition for me and something that helped me a lot. And so I did want to share that for any woman who is suffering um, in an abusive situation right now or going through that healing process. I wanted to offer some some uh, some reading that might help with the healing process. Thanks, Lisa. Uh, my recommendation is uh, in line with some of the things we've been discussing on this episode. Uh, it's an article in The Atlantic responding to that Whedon speech. Uh, it's by Noah Berlotsky, and it's called What Joss Whedon Gets Wrong About the Word Feminist. I just want to read a passage from it that uh, talks about the notion of natural equality that we discussed. Feminists have been wary of the idea of naturalness because it is so often used against women. Sexism feels natural to lots of people. And as Shulamith Firestone said at the beginning of the dialectic of sex, this gut reaction, the assumption that even when they don't know it, feminists are talking about changing a fundamental biological condition is an honest one. As far as most of what we know of history and culture goes, gender equality is the exception, not the rule. This is why feminists are feminists. It's why there needs to be a name. Social, political, and economic equality is not the default. The reason Whedon can stand up at the podium and say that equality is natural is because all these feminists he doesn't talk about, from Susan B. Anthony and Sojourner Truth on up, have fought exhausting battle after exhausting grinding battle to get to this point. Feminist is a movement, a history, a faith, a hope for change. As Firestone says, if there were another word more all-encompassing than revolution, we would use it. Saying equality is natural sounds like a good thing, but Whedon uses it rhetorically to ignore the entire history of feminism. And that wraps things up, I think. Thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or reading recommendation for a future show, or if you just want to drop us a line and say hi, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. For Sarah Morrow Cernelia and Lisa Cordles, I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer. Tune in in two weeks for our one and only December show, which will be on Mariology. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love. <laughs>